Listener Production. Hey, Rihanna Patrick here. The Chinese government introduced its zero COVID policy back in 2019 when the virus was first detected. So why are protesters choosing to demonstrate against it almost three years later? We've all seen what's been called the white paper revolution and how the Chinese authorities are attempting to mute it. You have to be creative in China because you can, you know, if you hold up a slogan somewhere, you're immediately in trouble. So the blank paper is a kind of parody of censorship. You know, you're holding up a blank paper because you're censored, you can't say anything. In this episode of The Briefing, Antoinette Latouf explores how protesters in China are using creative methods to stand up against the country's strict COVID measures. Before that, though, Annika Smethurst is here to join me for the headlines of the day. It's Thursday, December 1st. The Socceroos have won. Australia beat Denmark 1-0 in the FIFA World Cup this morning and made history doing it. It's the first time they've made it to that knockout round since 2006. Tain the ball, Moy. And there it is! Can you believe it? Written off too many times to remember. Australia has found a way. Yeah, Matt Leckie really was the hero for the Socceroos, scoring at the 60th minute mark. Matthew Leckie cuts back inside, one way, then the other, and he scores for Australia! Matthew Leckie! Yes, that's the coverage from SBS. While this was the response on the streets of Sydney earlier this morning. Yeah, that audio there from The Guardian. Annika, is this the only story of the day? <laughs> yeah, I think we're discussing before the show how happy Scott Morrison might be that the Socceroos have won, maybe taking the heat off him a little bit. Incredible victory, though, you know, up against it with Denmark, a soccer-loving country. So incredible result for Australia. Yeah, and the first time the team has won two matches at a World Cup and who knows who Australia will, will meet now, Annika? Yeah, I remember 2006 too. It was pretty epic scenes around Melbourne, people out in the street. I went out to Ligon Street to watch it. So it's just great for, I guess, you know, everybody to get out there after years of being locked down and enjoy this time together. Scott Morrison has been officially censured by Parliament over appointing himself to five extra ministries during the pandemic. The member for Cook in doing this did not just fall below the standards expected. He undermined them, he rejected them, he attacked them and he abused them. He's the first ex-Prime Minister to be censured after a motion against him passed 86 votes to 50. Scott Morrison said he had no intention of submitting to political intimidation. The politics of retribution and nothing less. These are the behaviours of an opposition, Mr Speaker, not a government who understands that grace in victory is a virtue. Yeah, the Greens of the entire crossbench, minus Bob Catter, also voted to censure Morrison as well as one of his own, Liberal Bridget Archer. I do not accept any of the explanations put forward by the former Prime Minister for his actions. The last time an MP was formally censured in federal parliament was 2018, but the difference was it wasn't a former prime minister. It's a pretty big penalty, pretty unusual, as we just told you, but there's no formal punishment. It it is just uh, the parliament telling you we're very unhappy with you. So if you're not somebody that uh, is worried about, I guess, uh, the traditions of parliament, and many are speculating that perhaps Scott Morrison is one of those, 
it might not mean that much to him. Yeah, well, Annika, I mean, Morrison had a few things to say. He said it was a dormant redundancy um, in how he described the secret ministry's affair. Morrison also insisted that any suggestion that he served as Minister of Portfolios that he was secretly sworn into was false. Um, but he did admit that it was a mistake not to tell former Finance Minister Simon Birmingham about taking his ministry. Yeah, and I think that is what I'm picking up internally, what the anger mostly is about, I guess, from colleagues. Uh, Josh Frydenberg's another one who learnt about it on social media, I believe. So he's actually uh, not only been censured, I think he's lost a few friends over this one. It's the first day of summer, which means we can officially say we've had one of the coldest and wettest springs in decades. Sydney and Melbourne failed to record a single 30-degree day while drenching rains meant our two biggest cities saw the second wettest spring ever. Yeah, and Melbourne, Adelaide and Canberra also endured the coldest daytime temperatures in 30 years. Uh, Brisbane Spring was the coldest in 12 and even Perth experienced the coldest in 6. Yeah, it's been pretty miserable here in Melbourne. <laughs> the long-range forecast is showing higher-than-average rainfall will stick around until February for Australia's southeast before La Nina finally fizzles out. Yeah, and despite that cold and wet, we are being warned that bushfires this summer could be worse for New South Wales towns hit by floods due to those high fuel loads. And people in southern Western Australia have also been told to prepare for above-normal fire potential. And briefly, inflation is down, easing from 7.3% in September to 6.9% in October, meaning the RBA could slow down those rate hikes. Yeah, former Chinese president um, Zhang Zemin has died at the age of 96. He was the one responsible for breaking China out of diplomatic isolation in the post-Tiananmen era. Carrie Bickmore has signed off on her last night on the project. She was on the desk for 13 years. And a cockatoo has wreaked havoc in Melbourne, dropping pot plants off a fourth-storey balcony in Flinders Lane. And, I mean, Annika, cockatoos really are the cats of the bird world. <laughs> that one gave me a fright, I must admit. I walk down Flinders Lane semi-regularly. I think I'll be looking up from now on. Thanks, Annika. We'll talk to you tomorrow. And coming up, Antoinette Latouf explores the white paper protest in China. Blank pieces of white paper, obscure mathematical equations, and even alpacas. What do these three things have in common? Well, these are all the creative ways China's zero COVID protesters are making political statements in a way to evade censors. And it's because China remains the only major economy with a strict zero COVID policy. And local authorities are clamping down on even really small outbreaks with mass testing, quarantines and snap lockdowns. But the regime is coming down hard on protesters and even journalists covering it. Richard McGregor is an author and senior fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute and he joins me now. So Richard, I'm really interested to know what sparked these protests because these policies have been in place for a couple of years now. Well, the protests have been bubbling under for some months. You know, if you follow social media in China, there's been all manner of little pieces of pushback and frustration about China's COVID zero policy. So why now? I'll say two things. 
COVID zero initially was very successful in China. You know, they suppressed the virus. You know, you think Dan Andrews can do a lockdown. Well, the Chinese can really do a lockdown. And so their economy recovered a lot faster than others. And they thought they were a big success. And then they, we get the Omicron uh, variant coming in and they can't suppress that. So we've had rolling lockdowns at a time when the rest of the world has opened up. People are getting very frustrated. The economy is tanking. Mm. And then about a week ago, we got a fire in a high-rise apartment block in Xinjiang in Western China, and the fire engines couldn't get close enough to put it out because the whole apartment block was sealed up. The city has been in lockdown three, four months. You haven't been able to leave your home. And they couldn't put it out, and about 10 to 20 people died, and you could actually hear them screaming as it happened. And this was the trigger to bring all the protests, people into the street that we've seen in the last few days. But that's just the trigger. There's a lot of stuff underlying uh, that anger. Is it accurate that some people in other parts of the country weren't aware that this region had been locked down for three months until those fires? I think that's the case. I don't even know whether they really understand that. Now, there's quite a, a number of cities in China which have had couple of years lockdown, like the, you know, a little a city on the Myanmar border, for example. Everywhere you go, anywhere in China at any time, there's going to be protests, right? So protest is nothing new in China. What is different about these ones is that it's spread through about 17 different cities. It's networked. In other words, they're all protesting about the same thing. And not only that, some of them have turned their anger on the ruling Communist Party and Xi Jinping by name, and that is really unusual. I do find some of the messaging and the modes of protest quite interesting because they include things like blank papers and obscure equations. Talk me through that. Yeah, you have to be creative in China because you can, you know, if you hold up a slogan somewhere, you're immediately in trouble. So the blank paper is a kind of parody of censorship. You know, you're holding up a blank paper because you're censored, you can't say anything, and plus there's nothing immediately that can be pinned on you for saying it. Mm. The Friedman one is interesting and the harder one for... And that's the equation, the Friedman equation. That's the equation by somebody called Friedman, which, of course, is a, a homonym with freedom. I wouldn't have understood the equation unless somebody had explained it to me, but they were these were math students at the Harvard, you know, equivalent in China. Mm. And so you have to be, you know, there's a lot in China to get around authorities, you've got to be very sinuous, right? So there's always clever ways to express yourself. And despite some of these clever ways, authorities still have responded to protesters. What's the, what's the backlash been like? And not only protesters, sometimes journalists as well. Yeah, totally. There's absolutely no doubt that the authorities will snuff these protests out. In fact, that's the key point. They can snuff these protests out, but they can't snuff the virus out, and therefore the COVID zero problem goes on. But you know, China has a massive security apparatus. Uh, you know, overground, underground, high tech. You know, AI and all that sort of thing. They film people and they can do facial recognition. You know, the truth is that with normal protests in China, the police are much more sophisticated these days. They don't automatically beat the crap out of people. They don't automatically jail people. They will try and how, talk how, you how out so, of it. How sophisticated? Yes, well, no, it is. I think that people outside of China think that they often do do that, but they, they will try to talk to the ringleaders. They will give people money. 
you know, to go home. They will talk to your parents or your relatives or your bosses. And they, there's an element of persuasion, but if you're not persuaded, then obviously the full force of the state will descend on you and that's when it gets extremely ugly. Is part of the issue here the efficacy of the vaccines that are used in China and also the uptake? There have been some figures out of the uptake in, in those over aged over 80, not enough, have taken the two doses. Would efforts be better placed rather than coming down on protesters and locking people in their homes when there's an outbreak with perhaps reconsidering the vaccine rollout? Absolutely. I think this is the key question. I mean, countries like Australia and other countries have only really opened up once we got the shield of vaccines or a high level of vaccination, particularly amongst vulnerable populations. Now, there are two things in China about vaccines. The first thing is their vaccine, you know, any vaccine is better than no vaccines, but their vaccines aren't as good as the ones on the global market, particularly the Western ones. They're not as effective at protecting you against severe infection. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, to use the parlance, you know, US street gang parlance, you know, the Chinese uh, system has been getting high on its own supply. You know, they kind of have persuaded themselves, we solved this, we suppressed the virus. You know, we protected you, Chinese citizens. Look at those hopeless democracies like America. So many people died there. Less than 6,000 people, the official death rate in China is very low. So a lot of elderly people in particular, they don't want to get a vaccine. They don't really trust the Chinese uh, vaccines. And so they're not getting booster shots. So you've got about 32 million people over 80 in China, and only about a third, 30 to 40% of them are fully vaccinated according to WHO standards. So there's millions and millions of people in China who are vulnerable. And if the virus spreads, then a lot of people will get infected and who knows how many will die. And if that happens, then the whole rationale of the ruling party is that we did this better than you Mm. falls apart. And so what do you think is going to happen next? Because this indefinite COVID zero policy clearly isn't sitting well with many Chinese people. So how do you think this stalemate will come to an end? I think the next thing we'll see is the sort of the protests will be suppressed. You'll probably see some outbreaks, but the sort of nationwide protests and networked protests will, I think, be put down. And then the central government will try to chart a way out of COVID zero as quickly as possible. That might take them some time, by the way, because, of course, China, particularly northern China, is going into winter, in theory, when the virus spreads more easily. Secondly, China has a political cycle. We just had the once every five years Communist Party Congress. Well, that political cycle finishes in March when they appoint a new government and a cabinet. So that's a sensitive time. So I think it will still take some months. You know, even then might be difficult. Somebody said in China the other day, they said, yes, well, China could open up tomorrow and a lot of Chinese would sit in their houses and refuse to go out because they've been made so scared about the virus. Um, It will take time. There'll be local experiments, local solutions. You know, local officials in China carry a great deal of responsibility, but they've been given conflicting instructions. The government tells, central government tells them, on the one hand, maximise people's health. On the other hand, minimise impact on the economy. Well, the two don't go together. And that's why everybody is screaming with frustration. And speaking of impacts on economies, this is also impacting Australia's economy, at the very least, the, the free flow of Chinese international students or Chinese workers. How much 
Is Australia, would you imagine, hoping that there's an end to that COVID zero policy? Yes, well, I think if you ask the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, what's your biggest worry? And most people might say, you know, high energy prices, inflation, of course, they are all really big issues. But I think his biggest worry is the Chinese economy because it's very important for the Australian economy. It's very important, actually, for the global economy. If you look in the last 10 years or so, about a third of global growth comes from growth in China. So it's important for our economy. It's important, actually, for our budget. You know, because the mining sector in Australia doesn't employ a lot of people, but it pays a lot of taxes, corporate mm. taxes, and it's a big swing factor. You know, we aren't, don't cheer China on in many respects in Australia these days, but I think in this case, uh, we would all be hoping they get through this. And what do you think the implications are going to be in terms of uh, the attitudes towards the leader Xi? Uh, well, look, you know, in theory, Xi Jinping is all powerful. He just got a third five-year term against, you know, he should have stepped down after two, but he's engineered a third term. You know, I think he's obviously secure for the moment. There's nothing that we can see that would affect that. But I think over time, uh, if this problem persists, uh, people are going to turn their attention on him because COVID zero is his policy. He supports it. He's insisted on it being implemented. So he's got to fix it at the end of the day. So, you know, don't think it, the government or the party state will be toppled, but their credibility is going to take a big hit. Richard McGregor, author and senior fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute. So, yeah, these next few months are going to be really important to watch how things play out, both how the Chinese regime responds both to the people but also the economy because they have a double juggle the diminishing popularity of President Xi, the economic pressure, and of course, Australia watches on with bated breath. That's it for today's briefing, but join me tomorrow when I get to sit down with the wonderfully talented Isaiah Firebrace. Listener.